Hello and welcome to Due South by Southeast, as well as the Dr. Squeeze Show. That's right, we're doing a pod clash. Now, the reason why we're doing a pod clash on this particular instance is because I did an interview with Paul Haggis. He is the creator of Due South, and as well as that, though, he did so much else. He's won back-to-back Oscars for screenplays he's written, and he's also directed back-to-back James Bonds. So he did the first two Daniel Craig's, including Casino Royale. He's just done so much, it seemed like uh, it was a great fit for both shows. So we're going to bring it to you uh, on both streams. So if you're listening to this on the Due South podcast, please do go to drsquee.com where you can find the Dr. Squee Show and you can subscribe uh, on any of your favourite podcatchers. be really good because uh, we've got some wonderful interviews there and we've got loads uh, which we've already recorded which are coming up there soon. And if you're listening to this, this on Dr. Squee, you may see where this is going. Please do subscribe to Due South by Southeast where we uh, drink some rum and we talk about Due South usually. And occasionally we have wonderful interviews such as this one. So uh, we're going to have the uh, theme tune here from Due South by Southeast, not the Dr. Squeeze show, because it was like it was originally recorded for Due South by Southeast, I must admit. Um, but yeah, as I say, felt like such a wonderful interview. We wanted to share it with uh, my entire audience uh, across both shows. So without further ado, this is my interview with Oscar winner, Bond uh, writer, as well as Due South creator, Mr. Paul Haggis. I'm Tony Craig. I play Jack Huey on Do South. I am Catherine Bruyer. Hey everyone, this is Ramona Milano, otherwise known as Francesca Vecchio. This is Paul Haggis, and you're listening to Do South by Southeast. <laughs> This podcast would carry me away But while talking to Squee here Can the shell get a word in edgeways Record over a bottle of rum On a darker Southampton Bay To South That is what we're talking about To South Saddle up my microphone Get deep in Baker To South by Southeast. Hello and welcome to uh, people on Facebook Live to my uh, live edition of Due South by Southeast. We're the show which usually brings you Due South uh, one episode at a time and gives Due South its views. This week we're doing something a little bit different, a little bit special. We're joined by uh, the man for whom which we would not be sat here today. The man who created the show almost 30 years ago now, and to this day we've still got people talking about it, still meeting in Canada, conventions for it, as well as uh, as creating this wonderful show, which we all love. He created Walker, Texas Ranger. He's a, a back-to-back Oscar winner, and he's written for James Bond. And as I found out through my research for this show, He's also had to start uh, working, writing for animation. So we've got a few things to get through today. So please welcome to the show, Mr. Paul Haggis. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, 
what was it which first interests you in getting into media? Like, was there something growing up where you just had the bug for it? Did you know this is what you want to do always? It's a good question. Uh, it's hard to always spot where things start. But as best as I can remember, it was around fifth grade. And I was at uh, St. George's uh, a public school. And um, uh, I was being taught by nuns. And uh, that was challenging at times. But this one particular nun, I've forgotten her name now. It's a shame. Uh, but we were, uh, you know, we all had to write compositions. And I was never a particularly good kid. Uh, but, and I was not that great at school. But I'd written a composition, uh, just a two-page essay of some sort. And she was handing them back. And she came by the rows, handing them all back, and they'd been graded. And mine said A, and she leaned down and whisper and said, you're good at that. And for some reason, that, uh, that really sparked. Uh, it really sat with me for a while. And uh, I'd always loved sort of, uh, writing, well, I used to write comic strips. You know, I, I, I created these little strips of cowboys uh, from when I was very, very young created these two characters. One was the hero. His name was Sam Oh Sam. Uh, I think because the heroine was always going, Sam Oh Sam. And uh, and we knew he was the hero because he had a curly hat, just a round face. And then there was the villain, Black Bart. And you knew he was the villain because he had a straight hat. Uh, and so I do little comics of him. And that, that stuck with me. So when I was getting into my uh, teenage years, you know, I'd been fooling around writing. I, mean, I loved comic books. I loved uh, Mad Magazine and things like this. And uh, and so I thought I might try to write a little bit. And and as I got a little older, I started writing some plays, some very, very bad ones. And my dad at that time had uh, opened uh, a small theater company um, because my sister, Kathy, uh, wanted to be an actress. And she was younger. And so he had this idea. He was in construction. He had a small construction company. I worked with him in the summer times. And we saw this uh, burnt-out shell of a Baptist church in London, Ontario. And we thought, you know, we should buy that. We should turn that into a theater. And so we did, he and I and some of his workmen, and we uh, renovated this old burnt-out church and turned it into a 100-foot, hundred 100-seat theater. And that's when I started writing plays and putting them on. And as I said, really, really bad ones. And I wrote some with my friends, I wrote some with myself, I directed some, and uh, I, I, and, and that's uh, that's how it started. From there, I uh, I decided at some point to be a fashion photographer because I'd seen blow up. Uh, and so I went off to England to become a fashion photographer, and that failed. I failed spectacularly there. And, um, it only lasted about six months before I came back with my tail between my legs. And, um, you know, so I uh, got more writing, working with my dad in the summertime, writing plays. Mm -hmm. And one day we were driving down the street, and he said to me, uh, construction, you're no damn good at it, are you? And I said, uh, no, I'm not. I was 22 at the time. And he said, you should go to Hollywood. You know, you should follow your dream. I'll give you, you know, $100 a week, uh, which was my salary at the time, for a year, and see if you can make it. And I said, great. I ran home. Um, I was living with my girlfriend at the time. I told her we were getting married. We're moving to Los Angeles. I'm going to be a writer-director. And she said, uh, what? <laughs> so anyway, she went along. We packed up. We moved to uh, 
L.A. and uh, knew nobody, had no education. I hadn't gone to, to college, went to one year of art school uh, and one year of community college. That was it. And um, so I just started and I took whatever little courses I could find here and there and worked as a furniture mover all day long and or various other odd jobs and then would come home and, you know, write. Um, so I'd work for eight, ten hours, and I'd come home and write every night, and wrote, 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 until I finally sold something. Can I just ask you something there? Because, like, something which fascinates me about when you're talking about those early comic books you wrote with uh, Black Bart, and he had the straight hat, and that would, that's what identifies him as the baddie, and you get who the good guy is. I think there is a theme with your work of being able to understand archetypes very well. Were there influences which went into that? What influenced you to, to kind of... I mean, like that? I mean, that stuck with me because, you know, very soon, I started writing as I became... I was, a, you know, I was a very bad writer for a long time. I earned a very good living as a bad writer for many years and uh, in television and because I got into sitcoms and uh, Norman Lear found me and put me on every one of his... Uh, bad shows he had not bad i was on like different strokes facts of life one day at a time yeah. shows but uh, but all my friends were on taxi and barney miller and all these great really and i was uh, i was writing what you talk about willis uh but, but you know after a while i just started to understand that you know, people just weren't who we thought they were that it was often the one who looked like the villain who turned out to be the hero the one who looked so heroic who turned out to be the villain and I came up with this theory early on that if you were in a movie theater and suddenly a fire broke out and there was smoke filling the room, you'd look around and go, okay, that the guy, that's the guy right there, that's the guy who's going to save us all. That great big burly looking guy who looks so heroic. No, he's the one who's going to run for the door first, trampling all the women and children to get out. And it's this, it's the pregnant woman at the front, it's the, you know, the tiny little pregnant who's going to organize everyone who's going to get you out. And so you never, and so early on, I started to, my writings say that it's never who you think it's going to be. Everyone's always a surprise, and that did stick with me. And that's when I was creating New South. That was uh, that was one of the things I wanted to stick with. Is you never know, you know, who the good guy is, who the bad guy is. But I think you've got to understand those archetypes to write like that. That that's what I I think is very interesting. Uh, but yeah. to, to, you have the archetypes, and then you turn them on their head. Exactly, like you know, they're very much early on in New South. I noticed you were kind of setting up who every character is before you could like break the molds a bit it's kind of yes yeah i think there's a theme there uh so getting to to some of the animation work you worked on so i've got a little list here in front of me so you did the richie rich scooby-doo crossover as well as them on their own heathcliff Fonz and the happy day gang which must have been so much fun and you wrote for uh, the plastic man comedy adventure show which also makes you uh, in part of the dc tv world i would say I think there's only one episode of that. I was very lucky. I, uh, you know, I was uh, I was trying to break in as a writer, and I met this fellow, uh, Michael Moore, and he um, he was not that Michael Moore, a different one, a lovely guy, and um, he, he uh, his grandfather was Mo Howard of the Three Stooges, and his brother was very successful in animation. He'd written tons. He was one of the top animation writers, and Michael was struggling to get in, and so and I'd met him and. You know, and he said, do you want to write something together? I said, sure, sure. So we wrote some ideas up on spec uh, for this new show called Ding Bat and the Creeps, uh, which Ruby Spears, which was part of Hanna-Barbera, uh, were producing. And, and they said, sure. And they liked the ideas. And so they assigned us the scripts. And 
you know, the, the pay was very little, but it was a hell of a lot better than, than what I got as a furniture mower. And uh, so we wrote the first season of that. And we, you know, we wrote, you know, whenever we'd be freelancing and writing all these other other uh, shows. And, uh, and at some point, my daughter, you know, my, I, I had a daughter by that time, Alyssa, uh, and I was in my mid-20s, I guess. And I realized that after about two years of this, that I was starting to become quite successful at it. Yep. And I looked around and saw the other writers who've been very successful, and they were all miserable. And I said, I have to get out of this. I have to somehow find out how to write for, for, for actual, you know, live human beings. And uh, so I, I quit and uh, took a shot at trying to write for sitcoms. And mostly I was doing comedy at the time. And I was able to get where we pitched to, I think, Love Boat. We pitched to a lot of different places and got yeah. turned down. Everyone turned us down. And to pitch in those days, what you have to do is you have to you hear about a show that's opening up, and you they sometimes get you in to watch the pilot, and they, they screen it for uh, 20, 30, 50 writers. Uh, and then you're invited to come in to pitch. And so between the time you watch the pilot and a week later, when you've got your appointment, if you're lucky enough to get an appointment with the producers, you'd come up with half a dozen fully fleshed out ideas for stories and another half a dozen um, areas. And what we'd do that, we'd do that, we'd pitch and pitch and pitch and sell nothing. Um, but I think finally we got a, a, a shot at a, a love boat and we wrote, uh, you know, one, they liked one of our ideas and we wrote, so in those days, the love boat series, there were four different stories in each episode and, right. and then uh, writers wrote individual stories and then the story editors and producers put them all together into a script and so we wrote one episode I mean one storyline for one episode and uh and sold it and then did three's company a uh, script for three's company and a bunch of other things um shows like mr merlin which never went anywhere but um yeah it was it was a great life I find it quite interesting because it's, it seems like these elements from the different types of shows you've done seem to have gone into due south in one way or another because you've got like that kind of larger than life cartoon element, you've got the comedy element, and then there's kind of a, a series of um, sort of crime and uh, law dramas that you've done. So we've got L.A. Law, Michael Key's uh, L.A. Streets. Was Do you think there is a kind of theme in there? You know, I, I loved crime stories. I loved adventure stories. I loved any kind of, I, I just love storytelling. And so, uh, and when I was young, I, I loved horror films, the old Vincent Price movies that I'd go to the theater on Saturday to watch when I was you know, 12 years old, the theater of blood and all these things. And my parents would drop me off on a Saturday morning and I'd watch a doubleheader. And, and um, so I, I just love storytelling. And, um, but also I'm, I'm, sort of perverse human being. I, I love taking genres and, and turning them and flipping them and surprising you and pretending it's one thing, but it's actually another. Um, and that stuck with me in all my work. Um, uh, I, I, I like to, to set the audience up and say, okay, this is what we're doing. You can trust me. This is exactly where we're going with this story. And you won't be surprised. Oh, yes, you are being surprised. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. Yes, this is the character. Oh, yeah. And he's this. And and, and when you thought he was a good guy, he's the bad guy. And uh, and you thought it was a drama, it's a comedy. Or you thought it was a comedy, it's a drama. And that's 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 always stuck with me. I, I like turning and flipping and surprising the audience. Okay, great. And uh, the, the 
uh, latter of the ones which I mentioned there, EZ Streets uh, or EZ Streets. EZ Streets. EZ Streets. Yeah. I kind of totally ruined the pun there. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was an American Canadian blend as well, I believe. Uh, you know, Easy Streets, which I'm very proud of, was immediately after the first season of Due South. I, I turned the show over to uh, to Kathy and Jeff, and I came back to direct a couple and write a couple, but I, I turned it over to them. And, and I'd been fascinated by uh, this by corruption in America and Detroit and Chicago, and I did a lot of research into into crime and corruption. And uh, so I created a fictional city, this border town. Uh, which was kind of like Detroit, Windsor, um, and um, and I set my story there. Um, so yeah, I guess it was. Uh, I, I like border towns. I, I like where you know cultures collide, and what? certainly that was the case with Due South. I mean, I really uh, when I was doing Due South, I said, "Oh, I could start a border war here. I could, I could the War of eighteen twelve. I could whip that back up again pretty darn easily." So, <laughs> <laughs> well, after all these years, you've given away the master plan now. Yes. Yes. Uh, speaking about Jusat, so it, it started off as just a, a a pilot. It was just meant to, or it wasn't meant to be a pilot. It was meant to be a TV movie. Is that correct? No, no. They wanted a series, huh. um, but uh, you do you do a pilot uh, in order to prove that. But you know, when I was writing it, it just turned into a two-hour pilot. So I thought, and they weren't particularly pleased about that. But yeah, you know, I thought the story was pretty big, and so it yeah. deserved to be a to our pilot which is very unusual for them but they were very supportive cbs was and there was les moon vets back in the day and um and then uh robert lantos and alliance it was actually his original idea roberts he'd gone to uh no it wasn't it was jeff Sigansky, i think um oh i can't, can't quite call him who it was at cbs but he'd uh he had been trying to sell a Canadian television show for a long, long time and, and to the States and, and failing. Um, and I was working in the States. I was probably one of the few sort of successful Canadian television writers. There was a good film uh, writers and directors during television. They, you know, they hadn't really broken in as much back then. And so uh, I'd written quite a few television shows for America, and they came to me and said, listen, we've got this idea. Um, about a, a trapper or some northern guy, a Mountie something, who comes to big city USA. Uh, and I thought, why me? This is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> this is just ridiculous. <laughs> and so uh, rather than just turning it down, I went away and thought about it for a day. And then I came back and it was, it was Jeff. And I said, uh, okay, uh, I think I'm going to do something with this. Um, I can I can subvert expectations. I can do a, a show about stereotypes because I love stereotypes. Yeah. Um, always have. I, I love presenting stereotypes because that's the way we all think. We, we pretend we don't, but we all think this way. And uh, so I love presenting them and then thwarting them. And then you know, say, okay, this, and then reinforcing them. <laughs> and then thwarting them again. And then reinforcing them. Uh, because there's truth in stereotypes. There's a lot of truth in it. Um, and uh, but at the same time, they're complete lies. So I, I, and I, I love those contradictions. So I said, oh, I can have fun doing that. I so I went away and I, I chose the Mauti and, and, and served this wheeler dealer, you know, semi-corrupt uh, cop and uh, in the States and set out to make the partners. 
I, I do love there's something about it that uh, comes from you you have to know a uh, a stereotype and a place inside and out to kind of like yes. to, to really play that stereotype and really take the mickey out of it completely and then completely tell the reality and that's what it was i mean and being a canadian and an american um you know i i could see i could see where both were completely full of shit uh yeah i remember my canadian friends you know when they knew i was living in america i remember what toronto and we were talking about how how jingoistic americans were and how how falsely patriotic and their flag wavers and stuff and just like you there were canadian flags everywhere (laughs) (laughs) everywhere i was standing on the street with must have been 12 canadian flags and they're talking about the americans are flag wavers and they look patriot and i love their their country i'm knowing um, did, you, did you notice? <laughs> so, but they can't. Yeah, we can't see it. And uh, and of course, Americans. I love Americans and their view of the world because they just don't think the rest of the world exists. Yeah. They just think there's America, and it's just like we're, if you're in America, there's New York and there's LA, and then there's kind of something in between. We're not quite sure of. There's a lot of grassland or mountains and things, but that's basically all there is. And as for Canada, they just think it's you know it's that that cold state up north of Michigan someplace and that's and you know, where there's polar bears and, and, and such and I, and I, I loved to play on that and, and uh, I mean, a poor Michael I remember teasing Michael way back when we got our first assignment in Canada uh, because before you know, we were doing cartoons uh, they this uh, uh, this producer in Canada who's doing a sitcom for the CBC heard that there was a uh, a Canadian writer in Hollywood, and so I was a Hollywood writer, even though I'd never actually written or sold anything uh, for a prime time. And so they sought me out, and they said, you know, would you come and pitch some ideas to us? We'll fly you up. And I said, well, I have this writing partner who's American. They said, great, great, bring him along. So that was scheduled. This is coming up, like, I think, I don't know, November or something. And so we're scheduled to go up there in a few weeks. And so Michael, who was born or lived in sort of Washington state, which is as close to the Canadian border as you can get, and actually geographically north of London or Toronto. Um, he said, so what's Canada like? Oh. <laughs> and I, I, as I said, I'm a horrible man. Uh, so I said, well, you know, it's uh, it's Toronto, so it's a big city, but you know, it gets cold. It, it, it definitely gets cold. I mean, in the winter, you know, it uh, the streets, they ice over about you know, three to four feet thick. And, you know, and so you can't go outside much. And so you, uh, you know, we have this underground and you always do shops and things down there, which you, know, you do in Toronto. And, and so you survive that way because you don't want to go up, you know, up the streets because, you know, the, you know, with, with the street shut down, so the, the animals come into the city, the, the, the bears, the polar bears, the wolves, uh, you know, the wolverines, they, they sort of run the city at that point. And so it's really not safe to be outside. He goes, oh, really? And so I started telling him these stories over this period of time. And I mix in things like, you know, the fact when you go out in the morning, your nose hairs freeze completely true. If any Canadian knows this, you just take a shower, your nose hairs freeze. And you go, well, it's that cold. Um, and uh, and so he's just gone for weeks. And he said, well, what, what, do you, what do you do for fun? You know, what do you do for? I said, well, for fun, you know, weekends, you know, I, I like to go seal clubbing. And he goes, what? I said, yeah, I know it's you clubbing in the St. Lawrence. You know, it's uh, it's on the ice flows. And he said, you don't like that damn you. I'm not doing any seal clubbing. I said, you know what? Fuck you and your arrogant American attitude. Those clubs are heavy. And those baby seals are small and squirmy. It's not as easy as you would think. So, you know, take your attitude and just keep it to yourself. So so this goes on, on until Michael 
tells me um, he can't go. He just he's too scared. It's too weird. He can't go. And I said, Michael, I've been lying to you this last three weeks. He goes, no. Goes, yeah, I, I made it all up. He said, you know, I knew there was something suspicious about that nose hair story. You know, <laughs> he believed the polar bears. <laughs> he believed, you know, the seal clubbing, all that. But the nose hairs, that was just one step too far for him to take. So that those are Americans. This is a smart guy. This is a guy who was raised, you know, <laughs> where it's cold. And still, they just, I, I love the fact that they're so egocentric they just so think america first that they don't know anything about their closest neighbors uh, and i thought i could play with that a lot i i, I think you've got a lot of very lovely mileage out of it <laughs> there, yes i i just love that feeling of like whenever i watch it it's always that feeling like um ray has constantly got a small benny inside of him kind of like trying to to push him towards the good side and Benny's got a small ray just trying to make him a little bit more streetwise. And it's just so perfectly balanced yes. between the two of them. That was the one thing. David, I love David Marciano. But the one thing he could never understand was that in television, and, and this guy's characters don't change. They, 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 they glimpse their flaws uh, and they want to change, but they can't. Just like human beings don't. We just don't change. We pretend we evolve. We pretend we get started, smarter, but we make the same mistakes over and over again. And uh, and we had a lot of friction here. I even though I loved him because he wanted his character to change, evolve, become smarter, smarter. And I went, no, you don't. <laughs> he doesn't change. You don't change. That's human beings. Every week you're going to make the same stupid mistake. But but the thing is, you're going to be wiser. You're going to go. I'm not going to step on the banana peel this time. And you're going to step over. You see it, step over it, and then you go, shit, I got to go back. And boom, you step on it. So <laughs> you think you're smarter. You're not. And so he, he could, couldn't grasp that. And so ultimately, he was very unhappy because he wanted his character to get smarter and smarter. And I went, mm, no, sorry. Uh, you're just, that's who you are. And then, you know, Paul uh, grasped it uh, better than he did because he, he understood that, he, that the character was very smart, but he was, he, was, um, he, he, he was who he was. He was. He grew up in a certain way. He was who he was. And even though he wanted to change, and wanted to evolve and wanted to become more of the part. He said, could become a little bit smarter, a little bit, you know, uh, it, to cut a few corners. Uh, it always comes at a cost. Yeah, it, it always felt like, I mean, I've always thought within TV and movies, the difference is within a movie, you're going on a journey. Within a TV show, yeah. you've got to do a reset, but it's almost like every series, you might just get one step, like, further on your journey, but that's about it. Yeah, Seinfeld is the same character at the end of episode, you know, the 10th season or however many seasons they got as he did in the first. He's exactly the same. All, all, the, all his friends are exactly the same. Uh, we think, you know, and, and that's the fun of television. You get to keep writing those characters over and over and over again. And that's it's much more human than a movie. A movie, you expect everyone to evolve and have their epiphany and have their crisis and come out the other side. And I love writing movies for that reason, because you see the emotional journey uh, of the hero. It's just not true, though. Television is much truer. And can you just tell us a bit about, like, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that it was, because there's a few sort of things online which suggest that it was originally shot as a just a two-hour movie, which obviously it was a pilot yeah. always intended. Uh, I, I'm not surprised to hear that because of the wonderful cast you've got in there. Can you just talk about a bit about casting it? And, like, Gordon Pinson is just amazing straight from the get-go. and Grace. I mean, I mean, Gordon came in, and I'd, I'd been a huge fan of Gordon forever and his work. He's just, just such an iconic character and an iconic actor and and um and you know and i needed someone to play that great father figure but then i was killing him in the first scene mm -hmm. and you know what 
And so uh, we shot in the Yukon that, and, and we killed him. And he said, well, thanks for the work, Paul. I said, I'm bringing it back. He said, you just killed me. I said, I said yeah, but I'm going to figure a way to bring you back. <laughs> he laughed at me and went off. And, and that was in the back of my head. And so, and so I finally figured out a way to bring it back. And, and that was so much fun. I loved that. You know, I loved that character haunting, trying to help his son, <laughs> but, but, but un, unable to do so and, and, and stuck in the past and with the hat. Being distracted by his hat, yeah. You just, just have so much fun. Yeah. And it was just, it, it did seem like just, he had, I think, just a couple of scenes in that pilot. And, you know, part of it yeah. beyond the grave in a diary, not even on screen. And just his presence yeah. was so felt. It just, it, it seems like he, he puts, it, well, it looks it was, like it so little, but it's so story. It was because this man was searching for, you know, for, for the man who killed his father and the reason why, and that was going to haunt the entire series. So, so it, 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 it was, uh, it was the emotional center of the film. And that's why, I mean, that's why this man's driven to, to go to this foreign place, uh, Chicago, which is, you know, so different from the Yukon and what he knows and, and try to, try to find his way through that, that, that jungle. Um, and I thought, you know, that's, that has to be a very strong emotion that, that bond, he and his father has to be incredibly strong, uh, or so that, that's why it worked, worked well and why I knew I had to bring Gordon back. And uh, finding Paul Grice, like I've never seen anyone more born to play a role than he is in that. Yeah, no, Paul was perfect for it. And we went, it was a long search. And it was actually Robert Lantos who uh, who found him and sent me the tape. And, and I saw him in some Canadian costume drama. And, and it was just it was ill-fitting costumes. And his face looked sort of like he put on weight or something. It wasn't. It was just bad, badly lit. And I said, you know, I, I didn't get it at all. Uh, and so, but I, he said, no, meet him, meet him. And so I did. And I met him and that was it. I, I knew he had the, the right kind of dry humor and so the heroic look, the dry humor, uh, that would fit very well. And he, he certainly he did a great, great job. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a lot of other shows where people say, oh, no one else could play it. And of course, some other actor would have, if they hadn't been available, but it would have been different in some way. It would have been such a different show, I believe, without Yes. Without Paul Grass. No, he had he had that innocence of that character, that, that purpose and that strength that uh, uh, that he did portray that really, really made that character, uh, Benton, uh, uh, the, the character who he is today. Let's on. We got a little bit of a request from the uh, from the uh, chat here from uh, Karen Ellery. Uh, she wants to talk about uh, you to talk about the casting of Franny, of course, the uh, wonderful Ramona Milano. Yeah. Again, we found so many wonderful, wonderful. Actors in um, uh, in Toronto big, who were just not being used as well. They they, they were again, uh, you know, I mean, there was nothing wrong with Canadian television at that time, but but you know, when you have a smaller population, you have smaller budgets for your television shows, and you you tend to do things that are safer or whatever. And people tend to be cast and and you know, as they do anywhere, they do the same the same role over and over again. That happens in America. It happens in Britain. You know. I have many friends who say, "I wish, can I just stop playing the wife?" And uh, and, and that's, that was the case there. We, we just just did auditions, brought her in. She knocked it out of the park. And I said, "Oh, great, we have to write more for her." Yeah, because it, it seems like you're always very canny with who you cast. Like in the smaller parts, like who? I mean, say smaller parts, only only smaller parts, not smaller actors or whatever the phrase is. Yeah. But it's uh, it seems it always seems to be with a mind of how they can be used in the future, or is it just like you just 
really pay that much attention to. No, it's not. It's not. But what happens is you write a good character, and then if you happen to to, to cast a really good actor, you start thinking, ooh, 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 what can I do with that character? Now, sometimes you just can't. I mean, we had wonderful characters in here. Mark Ruffalo, we had a lot of lot of folks came in yeah. and, and did small, small roles uh, that we were never able to use again. Um, but boy, you wanted to, and uh, but and if you, and you found a way, like with Gordon, if you found a way to bring them back, you did because it was so much fun writing for them the first time, even though you didn't know we were writing for them. That once you once they brought that character alive, you wanted it to stay alive. I, it's a shame nothing ever happened with that Ruffalo fellow. I don't think we ever heard of him again, really. No, sadly. <laughs> so, uh, getting back to to like some of the casting as well. So, like the original one thing I'm very struck with as well by the pilot versus the kind of on running show is the uh, I, I'm guessing the guy who played Walsh in the pilot wasn't available in the on running series, but it was a very different casting choice going forward. That's correct. So, uh, there, there were just some folks who were got busy in there and they, they weren't able to. Uh, to to uh, to continue on that happens between the pilot because the pilot we shot and then they you know they decide to air it as a movie because they weren't sure they're going to test it that was the, that was the theory they'll they'll test it you know, by airing it use the two hours to see it and it got okay responses uh, and so they said okay we'll, we'll we'll do thirteen and um, and then but by then two years had passed or a year and a half at least and and it was just hard to put everybody back together thank God you know, we had we, we had our so our core. But you know, we had to expand from there. But with uh, the casting of uh, Bo Star, a, a fantastic performance, but very different from the original actor. Uh, was it just a kind of case of you wanted to give that freedom for him to create his own character? It, you know, so things just happen. You find an actor and you just get like, ooh, I like him. I loved Bo. Bo and his brother Mike, I, I, I loved so much. Uh, and um, Again, he brought something that, that just just by his physicality and his uh, um, uh, and his skill that brought so much to, to characters that they wouldn't. You look for actors who don't have to do anything; they just they just look, and you know what they're thinking, <laughs> and you go, "Okay, that's that's." Uh, and but they but they do it in a way that's just a little different than you expected. They surprise you, and so they're, if they're angry, they whisper, or if they you know, they don't just like yell. I mean, they they they. And which makes it much more human and, and fun. And I just, oh my God, I just got locked out of my, oh, I'm back. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and that was the case with Bo. Okay, uh, we've got a, another question from the floor. Uh, unfortunately, I can only see Facebook user during the, uh, using the streaming app I'm using, but it's saying that uh, the user was asked, did it take long to play the duo, duo who played detectives Huey and Louie? Again, we got we just lucked out, and I loved you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> loved so much. Such terrific actors. Um, you know, no, it was we, we really lucked out with with our Canadian actors. We just uh, we had a good casting director. We went in, we cast, and went, oh, you're the guy. And then and uh, no, it didn't take long. It, it, they cast almost immediately, and they were wonderful. I just that was a case for oh, these guys are coming back. Oh, I love these guys, and we just kept bringing them back and bringing them back. Fantastic. And so, right, so you, you did the pilot and then quite a while later you go back to do the main show. Year and a half, yeah. 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 Did, did any of the kind of like uh, ideas change in that time? What was your kind of like, did you have a kind of a vision for the first series? I didn't seems... have much of an idea past what was in the pilot. I didn't know where it was going to go. Uh, I don't usually like to surprise myself. Um, what we weren't prepared for was the uh, 
I mean, it was very hard to find Canadian writers. They were the good ones were busy, and the others who just there wasn't a, since there wasn't a big demand for them, uh, they didn't develop the skills, and so so we had a very hard time. And uh, actually, what happened was my dad got a call from some guy he knew from his squash club. The one thing my father did when he was like a you know, he was, a, he was a poor kid, grew up middle class, and when he when he got in the middle class, he bought us a nice house, and and you know, with, where he kept he kept his construction equipment in the in the yard. And he wanted to take up a sport, and he'd seen this thing called squash, and so he decided to play squash. Joined this club, the only one who would let him in, and um, and so one of the uh, but he was he was the, he was there were all the other guys who played squash had gone to university, etc. And and this is this is the guy who didn't fit in so they he, he was a little ostracized a little bit there uh, but one of the, uh, the the folks who was a member who you know was one of the uh, sort of the more educated and uh, sort of well-heeled type was one of the attorneys and he uh, he knew my dad was a member so he called him up and said listen my son my son's an attorney but he, he doesn't want to do it he, he wants to be a writer uh and he's written one thing, and but would your son look at it? Sure. So I read, I saw his episode of I don't know some bad cable show. Let's so send him down, and so he did, and I liked him, so I hired him immediately. I said, "Here's what you're going to do: uh, you're going to write, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to rewrite you, and I'm going to make you sit and watch me rewrite you, and all you do is sit and watch, and you'll learn." And you'll learn why, etc. Because I can't teach, but I can show you how I do and how I think by by the, the way my my fingers move and, and, and the way the characters talk. He said, "Great." So we did. And um, after the uh, five or six episodes, he got quite good, and we ended up writing Victoria's Secret together. That, that way, we put it together because it read very quickly, and you know that became David Shore. Who uh, is now much more successful than I'll ever be? <laughs> so much richer than. Uh, uh, he does complain that he's still the second most famous writer from London, Ontario. But still, yeah, he, he, uh, uh, you know, he created House. He, he's got his show, The, the Good Doctor. Um, so uh, amazing writer, and uh, so he came up with me through the through that and through my next three series. So you you did you you found ways to to encourage the writers. But the other thing was that I had my sister, Kathy, who hadn't written much at all. Uh, in fact, she'd never sold it anything, uh, but she was Canadian and she'd been w- working with me on stories and I was sort of teaching her and letting her feel her way in. And she, Kathy had quite the ego. She thought she was, she, she could do anything and that was good to have that kind of confidence. Uh, but so I hired her as producer uh, and uh, she came on and, and, Jeff King, who I discovered, uh, who actually uh, uh, I didn't uh, get along well with the producer of the the pilot, and so um, because I felt they were trying, they were just too Canadian. They were trying to do things and stuff too cheap and awake. And I said, no, no, this is we're doing something. It has to be on American network television. We're going to do it right. And if it takes four takes to get it, rather than the one take you a lot of people here, we're going to do the four takes as comedy. Yeah. And if we do if we need to do ten takes, we're going to do ten takes because it has to be right. Comedy is tough. They were like, no, no, no. I said, yeah, trust me, it's it's that or get off my set. And because the only place you don't want to be that's uncomfortable is between me and the art I'm trying to create 
if, you, if you're trying to stop me, if you're, you're with me and you're helping and we're making mistakes together, is that where we're great? But if you're trying to stop me, it's not a comfortable place for you. So, so we, I had some of those people on the pilot until they figured out, you know, okay, we better go along for the ride. This guy's either got the vision and you know, the capability to do it, or he doesn't. And so, no sense trying to stop him at every stage. So I found Jeff King uh, to to come on as a producer, and it turned out to be one of my lifelong friends. Jeff's wonderful producer and uh, director and writer. But at that point, he was just producing and um, uh, and sort of toying with stories of that. So by about six episodes into this, we got our pickup for the the rest of the year, and I been quickly overwhelmed. And I, I couldn't because I was writing, I was directing, I was supervising the set. Uh, even when I wasn't directing, I was on the set telling the directors you know, because they didn't quite understand the, the, the balance of the comedy. It's really hard. And so, so I have to sit in my trailer and I'd write the next scenes you know, for the next week. And, and I was editing it and I was doing the music and it was just it was too much on, a, on an ongoing basis. So I turned to Kathy and Jeff and said, you have every second episode. It's yours. I don't even want to read the scripts. Good luck. <laughs> and so from, from what episode 12 on, uh, they just did every second one. And I was surprised. Oh, that's what we're doing this week. Uh, it was literally that. And I, I just had to give up control completely uh, and just focus on getting through the year. And so that's why you'll find the shape in the series where things seem to be, oh, we're doing this this week. And that week it's a little different. But I'd learned from Marshall Herskovitz and Ed Zwick when I did 30-something, who gave me a lot of freedom and gave the writers a lot of freedom. That, that's what, you know, you need to give people freedom in order to create. And uh, so I gave them that freedom, and, and, and I think it worked out quite well. Their style was different than mine. Uh, uh, mine was a little darker, perhaps, at times. Um, I like to go from really dark to really absurd, um, as with Manhunt and, and, and episodes like that, which are just... You know, really dark and then ridiculously uh, over the top. And I'd like to be able to stretch and give you that because yeah. my love of Monty Python and Faulty Towers and, you know, the Marty Feldman show and all these things I was raised on, uh, I thought you could, if you can believe the character, if the character believes the stakes uh, and, and cares that much, you can just stretch them to the sky. Uh, so that's what I was doing. They, their, te their stories tend to be a little different, but I really, I really love them. Uh, and that's how we survived the first season. And do, do you think there was uh, something to setting the scene by doing 13 episodes where you were so hands-on and then giving it out to the other uh, other creators? I had to. I, I, well, I, I had to. I mean, you're supposed to be that hands-on. And, and, and I was very hands-on every second episode after that. Yeah. Uh, but but um, with me, it was just how to survive. Uh, and, and I thought it did quite well. It, it was a nice balance. I think Jeff and Kathy did a terrific job. I just think there was a certain tone set that then, even though you can see the differences in the style in the other episodes, it was all in keeping because yes. you'd set what it was. Yes. Yeah, and they were very close to me the whole time I was creating the show. Kathy was with me when I was writing the show. Um, down in California, when I was writing the pilot, and she was sort of working as my assistant, kind of. Uh, and, uh, I was help, trying to help her break into television. And, um, and so... Um, so you know, she, I'd love to show her ideas and, and things. And so she she started to learn sort of my habits and my ways, and then um, became a terrific writer on her own, in her own way. Excellent. And uh, one thing which I'm always very struck by, especially um, I've got to know the guys behind the uh, R 
RWC one three nine conventions and something they've they've done the set tours and something I'm really struck by is how much you get out of each location on due south but it feels like it's it, it never feels like you're in the same area like you know can yeah, you talk a you bit about to. you have to you have to learn it when you have a small budget I mean because we had a relatively small there's a big budget for Canada but a, but for the states it was a relatively small budget it was one of the reasons CBS wanted to do the show because they could get a cheap show you know? yeah. and so. So uh, we had to stretch those dollars. So if you were shooting in this direction, you better make sure that you might be able to turn around, light it differently, and and give you something that looks completely different, as if it's a mile away or something. And so we often did that. We'd stand on a street corner, Jeff and I, and go, okay, this way we can shoot this. We turn this way. It's a different city. <laughs> it's Chicago here. It's Toronto there, or or whatever. You know, or it's uh, or it is uh, you know whatever we can do. It, or it's this side of the town and that side. You know, we often or we'd go to the, the front shop and then we 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 search for what can we shoot within one block. And uh, because when you move a company, it takes an hour, two hours, and we don't have that. We need to shoot. And so we walk around the back, Jeff and I, and go, oh, see. I can rewrite that scene for this fire escape, you know, and pretend it's someplace else. And this is where the burglar is going. So, yeah, you had to. It was just a matter of you had to be inventive in order to get the, the movie show, the TV series shot on that schedule. Was there one uh, episode for you where it really felt like you, uh, was that that kind of aha moment of like, we've got it here. We've got like the strike. Yeah, Victoria's show. Secret. I think when we finally came up with Victoria's Secret, which is the end of the thing, that's, that's when in that one, you know, David and I wrote the whole two-hour part two, two part one in one week. And while I was prepping it, while I was casting it, because they came up with the idea they wanted a big show to end the week, end the thing on, and uh, and and they they'd taken away one one episode from us. Uh, and so I said, okay, we'll do a two-parter. We'll do a big cliffhanging two-parter, uh, sort of an origin story. And why is, you know, answer some questions about Benton and you know, why he's the way with women and, and have this two, terrific romantic thing. And they said, how? I said, I don't know. I'm going to start writing now. So I grabbed David. We came into the room and we just start banging away. And while I was prepping, while we were casting, we, you know, coming up characters going, ooh, call the casting director, see if we find a character. And so it was so much fun. And of course, we found Victoria, uh, who I you know, knew. And... And that it turned out to be pretty epic, and I'd love directing that. That was so much fun. But, you know, there were others along the way. I loved the one. You see, I haven't seen any of these since they aired. I haven't seen one. Right. I don't go back and look at my work. But I re- remember them fondly. I remember shooting them especially fondly. I remember the one, I forget the one that was with the Canadian Mafia, uh, which are going down to the three and apologizing to each other on the way. I, I loved that one. Uh, and the shootout um, with the, that they're all waiting. I love because I think I directed that one too. And if not, I stood behind the director. I can't recall. But um, the uh, no, I didn't direct that one. I only directed the beginning. And the end. I think, but I loved doing it. Or, or but also in the second season, I came back and did the the, the one with you know when Dad is back in his life and shows up in the middle of a shootout to give him advice. <laughs> that was so much fun. I forgot what it was called. Um, but then uh, others, others I loved, um, the uh, the Christmas one we did, the gift of the uh, wheelman. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was fun. Uh, it was good because it had deeper themes. Um, and uh, it was a simple story, but something we got to twist around. And 
Yeah, so there were, there were a few that I really loved. I have to go back and watch them sometime. I mean, you talked there about Victoria's Secret a little bit, but uh, it, it's the way it's filmed, the way every moment is shot of like her, her entrance with the snow globe and then at the end that um, very cinematic shot of uh, her on the train. And it, I, I think it almost could be like... Um, Wrongly shot, that that scene could go on too long, but it's it's perfectly just gets builds up the tension just just so well. I think it's one of the finest. I just went crazy. I uh, thank you. I just went crazy. I said I'm going to do exactly what I want to do because I hadn't been allowed to direct anything in television up to that point, and these people said I couldn't direct, and I said I think I can, and so I just said I didn't set out to uh, to show people I could direct, but I set out to tell the story the best most visual way I could, and. Uh, so that was one of the first things I did. Um, I really loved doing it. It, uh, it, it was just, you, you find a style. And that with me, it's very organic. For example, when they're coming to search the house, I forget which one it was, I decided to shoot the whole scene from outside through the windows and move the cameras that way because I thought that was much more interesting. You know, the train station, uh, the, the confessional. I mean, I did with the confessional, I remember people said, no, you, you, you don't. No, you, you can't just do four pages of dialogue, uh, monologue, sitting there. You have to shoot flashbacks. And these are said, no, no, I feel a good actor. Stay in his face. And he'll keep you. This Paul, trust me, is a good actor, and he can keep us on the edge of our seats you know, for those four pages or whatever, because it's a story. And lean forward story is all you need. And so I just trusted him. You know, I just I shot it in a certain way that made it feel very intimate and dramatic. But, you know, we're in a time booth. It was like... Yes, I was able to pull it back from the camera and, and, and do something visually interesting, but it's the, it's the actor. You know, it's, it's the words and the actor. And if you can, so I trusted that. Well, the other people would have said, no, you have to do flashbacks. I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you the whole story right here. Yeah, that seemed like one of the bravest shots I've ever seen of him just sitting there in that confessional booth and the camera just doesn't move from him. And just, yeah, I, I think you're almost nervous for the performance like when you're watching yeah. it back but it's just yeah. so magical um yeah yeah that's just me really just blowing you up there but uh but to get back to the questions so with uh the second series you're you're only involved really at the beginning of that series is that correct this second uh, yeah i gone out to create another series in the south in, mm. uh, down here at easy streets and but i wanted to support uh, kathy and uh uh and jeff because it was originally cancelled and it was brought back yeah. And um, and so I uh, I wanted to support them. So, you know, I said, I'll, I'll help them write. I'll help them up their stories. So I helped them break their stories for the for the, uh, the second season. Uh, I sat down with them and said, okay, try this, try that, try this. Um, and then uh, and then came up and said, I'll, I'll write and direct a couple. And I did that. And, and I enjoyed doing that very much. I think it was one or two, I can't remember. Um, and... Um, and that was it. I, I allowed them to go, and you know, you, it's what you have to do. You have to let people go and do what they do. The same with the third season. The third season, Paul wanted to make some changes, and he came to me and he said, "Do you think I could run the show?" And I said, I, "I think you absolutely could." Um, and so I gave him my best advice on, on how to uh, to move forward. He made his own choices, but uh, I, I thought again, it would, and, it, and a completely different style, because every time you have a new showrunner, you're going to have a different style. Uh, but uh, again. Uh, I thought uh, I felt very good. Yeah, and I mean, like, we, we, I want to get on some of your other work after this, but given that it has been almost thirty years, and there's still people going to the convention I aforementioned in Crazy. Canada, 
And uh, I, I want to give a big shout out to Stefan and uh, John Wright, both of whom say hi, by the way. Um, oh, great. And what do you think is owes to the longevity of Due South and why we still love it? I mean, I could tell you from my experience, but for you. I have no idea. I, I never know why something is going to be successful or why it's going to live. I don't know. I, I create my characters. I try to cast them well. I let them go. I don't know. Some things, I mean, with Crash and Million Dollar Baby, I was told, uh, hold on, I've got a cup here. Stay where you are. Thank you everyone for your questions, by the way, while we're waiting for uh, Paul to come back. And uh, we will try and bring in your questions as much as we can, some which I've sort of left off because uh, I know we're getting to stuff, but uh, thank you all for... I, this is, you probably can't read this, it's, it's back. No, you can. Uh, so, um, when I was writing Crash and Million Dollar Baby, uh, you know, I, I'd taken a big risk. I'd left television. I, I couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, it was, I was just being poked into more and more traditional ways. And I'm not a traditional kind of writer. And I, you know, I, I came to them uh, after uh, Two South and Easy Street, so I wanted to do something very daring. And they wanted me to do a law show. And I went, okay, fine. Family to feed, do a law show. And it was fine. did my very best. Really, really do try, but again, it was frustrating being put into such a, a tight box. And so I quit. Actually, I was fired, and I uh, wrote uh, Million Dollar Baby. Uh, took a year to write that, and then I took it to. I wasn't a film guy. I'd never done any movies, and in those days, especially, there was film and there was television, and yeah, it was two different worlds. Uh, you didn't socialize. You didn't know any of those movie stars. They were up there. As for the writers and the directors who did that were up there, and we lowly folks were down here doing television. And so when I'd written this, and I took it to one of my film producer friends, big film producer friends, to read, the only guy I knew. And he said, uh, he read it, and he called me to his house, and he said this. He said, really good script, Paul. It will never sell. <laughs> And so, and so someone made this mug for me uh, recently, last year, I told that story, so I made the mug. And so I was disappointed, obviously, but then I went away and got with my friend Bobby Moresco, and we, uh, my wife at that time, uh, as I was married, and she said, you know, that idea you had for a TV show, uh, you should pull it out and do that as a movie, he'll win an Oscar. I went, what are you talking about? Why? Okay, so I... I pulled out this outline I had and tried to sell, and no one wanted. Again, it was daring. At the television show, I tried it everywhere. I'd taken it at HBO. I'd taken it everywhere. No one wanted this thing. It was about race. It was about class in America. And so I called Bobby. I said, do you want to write this with me? I've got a 40-page outline. I said, sure. So we wrote it. And wrote quickly, did a rewrite, took it back to uh, the same producer, and he said, really good script, Paul. It'll never sell. <laughs> Same thing twice in a row. And so I was disappointed, but, you know, I used to be expert. So I just kept trotting it around uh, all over town for three, four years, tried to sell those scripts, and finally got a little money. And they sold, and they did very well commercially. Well, they're not commercial ideas in the least. So I don't know, to answer your question, why things work and why they don't. I know it's a good story. I know it's well cast. I know it's well shot. But whether it'll grab on to the imagination of people and it'll stay there, I mean, like Do South has, I can see why Canadians would love it. 
but I had no idea why Brits or Australians or, or I don't know people in India or, or, or Japan. I don't know why people layered like this, this this series so much. So you tell me. Well, I mean, well, I, I will just say this. I I think there is something wonderful in the. There's so many specific things in the show that you can take general lessons from them. And there's also, yeah. I mean, like we were saying before about the, the thing of you can only take the piss out of somewhere if you know it so well and you love it so well. That very much speaks to the British sense of humour. I, I think that you were mentioning yes. that you were influenced by. And I think there's something yeah. wonderful about the fact that I think if you'd made uh, Due South somehow for half the budget or twice the budget you made it for, I think it would be the same show because the, the heart of it had to be there. Mm. Well, thank you. Well, it was, well, it was, you know, it was in the characters. Uh, that, that was, I was lucky enough to be able to create those characters that, that we then were lucky enough to cast in ways that were so, as you said, so perfect that it lasted. Yeah, uh, you've mentioned uh, Moon Dog Baby there. Actually, I'll, I'll get onto that in a minute. One that I just want to quickly touch upon was Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, what a, uh, a fantastic and, and very different show. And to, to have Chuck Norris like had he done much before that was that that really the discovery of him oh Chuck Chuck had done all these action movies you know and he was a huge action right. star um, and again this was Jeff Sigansky came to me and I was about to go out to shoot a little movie you know Latvia turned into a disaster it was my first attempt at trying to make movies and he said Paul 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 I have uh, Chuck Norris and I have a very bad script about uh, Texas Rangers and I said, and you're calling me because? He said, I need a favor. Just give me a couple weeks. I know you're taking out. Give me a couple weeks. And I said, well, okay. He said, oh, I have no money. But, oh, okay. Because I had a pretty good pilot fee at that time. And, okay, you know what? I like Jeff fine. So I, he, gave me, he paid me like $10,000 for the whole job. Went up, but my fee was a lot bigger. And so I went off and, and I, I created this pilot for them. And I gave it to them. And I left. I never saw them again. I'd met Chuck once. That was it. That's all I ever had to do with that show, which proved, and it was on for 10 years, which proves to me that the less I have to do with the television show, the more successful it is. <laughs> so that's, that's another thing I learned. I don't know. You created a, a show in Due South, which was practically unkillable. It went for three series, got canceled twice, and we're still talking about it 30 yeah. years later. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. I wish it had been unkillable. I wish it had survived. I wish it had, you know... Uh, braver executives and, and folks who uh, weren't so reliant on that that meter that week, the Nielsen or whatever it was, that, that was tough. Because it could have grown into something. It could have, but I think if something is, is so determined for people to kill it and it still makes it to three series, I think that's not a bad shout. Yeah, that's not bad. That's exactly. Uh, we, we were talking a bit about um, Million Dog Baby there. So so when does like um, Clint Eastwood get involved in that? Clint, uh, four years into me uh, trying to sell it, uh, I was going to direct it. I had a little money to do it. And then my partner, producing partner, I'd, I'd put the money up for the rights, and he'd put the money up for the rights. He's a real salesman, a real Hollywood type. And he was pals with Clint. He said, we're taking it to Clint for the role of Frankie. And I said, he's going to want to direct. No, 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 no. So he took it to him, and I was just, I was shooting, I was in my first weekend of shooting Crash at that time. And, uh, of course, and I don't think he even told him there was a director. I honestly don't. I just think he was just, he's too good of a salesman, this guy. And so Clint called him back and said, love the script, can I direct it? To which point I told him, no, let Clint find his own script. Thank you so much. 
And my agents descended on me. I said, pop, 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 stop. If Clint Eastwood directs your script, it'll make your career. And then I thought of Unforgiven, which is one of my favorite films of all time. And he did such a, he's a masterful job of directing that and starring that. I went, yeah, he should direct this. So um, and it turned into a great relationship. I ended up doing three movies with him. Uh, becoming friends, I, I, well, they're Hollywood friends, we're friends who you know, really love each other when they see each other, but you know, I don't, I don't you know, especially with, when I took my choice to move to New York and live here, you know, I, I, I did that for a reason, I wanted to get away from all this uh, Hollywood phoniness that is there, it's not all phoniness, but it is superficial, it is it's driven by career, and everybody has an agenda, and, and uh, I like to be around human beings who have their own agendas, they're not, not necessarily, you know, they need me for something or other, or I need Clint for something or other, he just seemed uh, out of friendships for other reasons. Yeah. I also wanted a city, I also wanted a city, I missed him, like Toronto is a city, and, and you know, a lot of the cities in Canada are cities, and uh, as, as in Europe, and, and LA is just not a city, it's end of the suburbs. But in any case, uh, he got involved, and I thought did a, a wonderful job, I, uh, I produced that film, but um, I couldn't stay on the set long because Hillary started asking me questions instead of asking the director, and I thought that would be, that would be a great disservice to the director and to her to, to be in between the two of them, so I sort of absented myself. And at that point, I had the script to write for Clint anyways. I had flags of our, father, of our fathers, and in the middle of writing that, he asked me to do Lettuce in Iwo Jima, so I was, I was pretty busy. So, but that, that turned out to be a great relationship. I'm like, I, I'll write for Clint anytime, anytime, yeah. because he won't change a word of my scripts. He, Martin Campbell, don't change a word of my scripts. Uh, and so Casino Royale is the way it is because Martin wouldn't change a word. A million dollar baby wouldn't change. So I, as a writer, you're like that. I think anyone who grew up watching Clint would be too scared to say no, no matter what age he is. I know. <laughs> it's amazing. And uh, just, just talk us through just going to the Oscars, just, just, getting to that moment and where, where do you first hear that you've got the nod and how does that go oh, that that was ridiculous it was fabulous but ridiculous i mean we've been nominated for million dollar baby the year before so i was kind of prepared in some ways i knew what the circus was award shows i always hated award shows i'd never watched them i thought the competition between artists is kind of obscene i love oscars i fucking love them i mean i said i love the whole idea but trying to judge one great picture against another because you look back at all the wonderful movies that didn't win or didn't, weren't even nominated um, in history. So I, I'm not a big fan of, of the, uh, the salesmanship that goes towards award shows. At the same time, it's very heady. It's lovely. People are telling you you're brilliant. They're handing you statuettes for various other award shows along the way. So... Um, so, you know, it was, it was a wonderful experience. I, 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 I really, really like having those Oscars and those Emmys and those Golden Globes and the David Donatello Awards, all the, all the awards I've won over the years. I don't know, but I, 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 there's, there's a lot. And, and I really, really greatly appreciative uh, of all of them. But you don't make a movie to win an award. No. Uh, you make a movie to, to, to say something, to... You know, it's like little comic scripts. You, know, you make them to, to tell a story. And if you tell it well, people might give you the award, and they might not. I mean, In the Valley of Ella, which is my second film, I thought was actually a better film than Crash um, in many ways. Uh, certainly 
significant. So I was trying to stop a war at the time, and it was great performances. No one saw it because it was a political movie. It was critical of the Iraq War when the Iraq War was very popular in America back then, and the studio was scared to do that, to, uh, to to put it out, so it went out very small. Yeah, doesn't make any worse movie. But I'm just wondering with you, I I, I get the feeling you're someone who might uh, not like. How do I put this? The, the the level of attention, but the the way of the attention after winning two Oscars. Like, was it hard to kind of like concentrate from yeah. the noise to what you wanted to actually make? Does that make sense? It wasn't hard for me to concentrate because I just naturally turned down all the big offers I get because I'm an idiot. Uh, <laughs> they, they bring me all these big movies to do, and I just go, "No, why would you think of me? No, stop, go away." I went to this little movie with a thing. I mean, an independent filmmaker, but same time, I mean. <sighs> I know uh, some some terrific writers who are complete hermits. I know directors who are complete hermits. You get Oscar nominations, you get Oscars. It's really hard for it not to affect you and not not to puff your ego up. You start thinking you're damn good, and 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 you are damn good. But the problem is, I've seen it happen so many times, where. It goes from there to people thinking they're infallible. And then they make really bad movies because they won't listen. And I knew I was pretty damn good at that point. I'd spent many years working really hard at my craft. And so I knew my craft was pretty good. It wasn't great. I had a lot to learn. But if I give enough time, I could sculpt a pretty good story and maybe direct it. Simply. Uh, and emotionally, but simply. But I wasn't a fabulist. I wasn't the Martin Scorsese who could do this with the cameras and this and think this. I, I just was do could tell a story emotionally, perhaps, but that's what I could do. However, in staying in Hollywood at that time, it's like everybody tells you, every coffee shop you went in, walk into, every place tells you you're brilliant, tells you kisses your ass, and they all and many of them mean it. It's it's not insincere. Some of them insincere, but, I mean, but that's terrible for an artist. Because you start believing what they're saying. Yeah. You can't help not to. It's like you, you're just, your ego, you change. And I saw myself changing and, I, and, I, and believing this stuff. And I said, I have to get the hell out. So I moved to New York right after uh, that. And just because, you know, it's, I, I still, I lo I'd always loved New York. I'd always, I worked here in theater when I was like 18 years old. And I loved the mystique of that. But I, I needed to be around people that just weren't all in the same business. We could have conversations so that um, I'd have different conversations. Given my druthers, I'd live in Europe because I love that way of life. I love sitting. You give me an outdoor cafe and a laptop and a good cappuccino or a glass of wine, I'm a happy guy. Uh, so it's not that I'm not social. I'm a contradiction like my characters. I am... I, I, I'm, a, I'm a social hermit. Uh, I, so uh, just like I'm a, so a, a, I don't know if I'm, I'm an optimistic cynic or a cynical optimist. I think I'm a cynical optimist. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, I, I have to, I mean, now with what's going on, which is so terrible uh, and is affecting so many people's lives and, you know, and, and uh, killing people. I know friends who have been terribly, deeply affected by this and were ill. And, it's a terrible time. And I feel guilty in many ways because I love it. 
I, I don't have to come up with excuses, make excuses as to why I can't go out to lunch or dinner. I can just stay home. I can just, I can just write. I can just, and I've been teaching myself how to cook, which I never knew because I just ate out three meals a day at some cheap diner or someplace because they just sort of go out eat, come back, write. And, and, and now I don't, I don't need to make up excuses as to why I don't have to see people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a horrible man. So, so, uh, uh, so now, uh, and, and it's, but I like seeing people. Well, I, I, you know, I play my games when I, when I actually go out, but I have to force myself to go out. And when I do, I really enjoy it. I, I with my charity and that, I can go out, I can work a room, I can get people's money, I can, uh, I can be the showman. And when I'm a director, I can do that. But it's like, the, that's the thing of being a writer and a director. They're completely different human beings yeah. with completely different skill sets. And many people can't do both. Uh, because one has to be thoughtful, and one has to be able to sit for long hours by themselves and, and, and live like that, and the other has to be able to manage people well, to be a great leader, and I can't say I'm all those things. Uh, I, I can't. Um, I've failed many, many times in, in, in both writing and in directing and sort of producing. Um, but I, I have skills that, that sort of fall into both, you know, uh, and... And I force myself more to, I force myself more to go out and direct than I have to force myself to write. I've always felt that I can sit down and live with my characters, and which makes me a terrible person to live with. You ask both of my ex-wives uh, and my kids, as I'm so selfish. I just, I just, I, 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 when I start writing, I, I'm in that world with my characters. I, I'm in there and I don't want to get out. Uh, and, and people will be important things that are going on with their lives. And they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, these guys have to do this. this and then, oh, dad, this is going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really, I, I really, and I'm sincerely interested, but I've got this character who's in this problem, who's got this thing, and, you get, da, 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 and I'm in that world. And only when I'm out of that world do I go, oh, that was important. I, I better go check in on my daughter and see what it is. And by then, of course, I've missed it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a horrible, horrible man. Horrible man. <laughs> I did something I loved in, in, in everything you said there is it, I think there's something when you reach the, those success points like like the Oscars or whatever it is where someone who's just like who, who does get uh, enticed by the awards and everything and just like thinks how can I win another one I think some of my favorite uh, creators and auteurs if I can make, use a slightly pompous term like that like yourself like Kevin Smith like several other kind of creators just think how can I create another story which I'm going to love as much as that yeah. It's not that we don't want the Oscars. I want a truckload of them. Yeah. I want a whole room full like Steven Spielberg. I'd love that. But I'd much rather do 10 great movies than have 10 Oscars. Give me give me the chance to make 10 great movies. That's all I want. Yeah, definitely. Or a couple of t- good TV series along the way. Yeah, that'd be good. I, I think you, you ticked all those boxes along the way. Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're never happy. Yeah, uh, well, one thing I have to, of course, get upon, as, as a British man, it would be a crime if I didn't talk Bond with you. Now, uh, like, in this country, you, uh, uh, like, you're born just knowing what a Dalek is and who James Bond is. That's the two things you've got yeah. said in your head. You must have, like, you know, um, I don't know, how do you get over the... Well, I mean, when they came to me, it was after Crash and after Million Dollar Baby, and I was vacationing with my family. I'd finally taken a vacation with my family in, in Italy because I'm, I'm just terrible. I don't take vacations. So my wife 
uh, convinced me to, to take a house in Italy for a month, and we were inviting all our friends and the family were there. And I, and I said, I could, I could write there, I could go there, I could write, but I had to be there. So uh, I, I met Martin Campbell for dinner. He invited me to dinner a month before. We had a lovely dinner. And then while I was in Italy, they called, my agents called and said, Paul, they want to talk to you about writing the next Bond movie. And I said, are they out of their mind? And I said, why? I said, have they seen my movies? Crash, Million Dollar Baby. They've seen these movies. And they said, Paul, I think they knew who they're calling. I said, are they aware that if I do Bond, I'll ruin it for everyone forever? And they said, Paul, they know who they're calling. Just get on the phone. Fine, fine, fine. So they were nice enough to come to Italy to meet me because I, I wouldn't leave. And so they not only came to Rome, they came to this small town of Balsena. I know the whole, you know, the Broccoli's and Martin, they came disgusted. I'd read their script, uh, which I thought um, had many problems. Um, and I told them how I would fix it. And I did. Uh, it was so much fun. I, was, I wrote the whole script backwards. I started at the end um, because I knew that they, they needed an ending they didn't have. And uh, I started with that and then wrote the whole thing backwards. Um, and, um, you know, Act 3, Act 2, Act 1. Gave it to them and then they got Daniel Craig, which I thought was a brilliant move. And that was it. it there's just something about those films, especially the first one particularly, which... It, it strips away on all the, all the iconography, but there's something in the way you've written the scenes which kind of puts it there yeah. without saying it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I just had to say that if I'm going to do Bond, I have to make Bond human. I can't change who Bond is, but I have to ask myself really hard questions about how Bond became that. And I had to come up with those answers. And that's how a lot of those those story points, the, the scene on the train, and all those things came out that they seen in there. You know, I knew he had. To, I had to make him fall in love. I knew I had to get under his armor. I knew he had to be surprised uh, by this person. I knew what was at stake for him and, and how he became this killer. And I had so much fun uh, because if you're given complete freedom like they gave me, um, you know, they, they were worried. But they gave me complete freedom to to, uh, to recreate what they because they wanted to recreate Bond. They were scared, but they wanted to do it. And um, they came to a guy who just isn't scared about stuff like that. And so I really loved it. And Martin, as I said, wouldn't change a word of my script if I did it all the way. The next, they asked me to do the next one after that. I didn't want to because I thought I couldn't do a better job than Casino Royale. They convinced me. I did. But then they had a director who thought he was a writer and. After I gave him the script, they they redid it. They did it. And so I thought I think I gave him a better script than Casino Royale, actually. But that's not the way the movie turned out. But they just still made billions of dollars, so I, so they can't I can't complain. Yeah. Now, I I'm, I'm afraid I have a writing section to go into in, in just a few minutes, so I'm going to have to uh, to to bail on you shortly. Have I got enough time for one more question? Of course you do. Yeah. Okay, let's that was, that was the warning. That was the warning. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, so just, I, I wanted to very quickly, I uh, don't really want to get into the Scientology of it all because those people sure. get too yeah. much press anyway. But you watch, well, got, watch uh, uh, Going Clear like my friend did last night. That, that explains a lot. <laughs> but the only thing I do want to ask about is that uh, I think it took a lot of bravery to talk about those experiences. Like the first people to talk about it, it, it took a certain level of bravery, but seeing what shrapnel they got from that, what makes you still uh, determined to, to tell your truth, to, to, to tell that story, even though knowing you're going to get some reprisal from that community? 
there these are people that I was I aligned with myself with since I was 22 years old in Canada. I got in Canada, London, Ontario, when I was 22. I was in love. They said they could help me get along better with my girlfriend. That's how I got in. And it worked. Um, I got along much with my girlfriend. We got married, except for moved to Hollywood. Never helped with my career, although they keep saying that it will. And I certainly hoped it will, but it wouldn't. It didn't. But it did help, you know, with my relationship and other things. And, you know, and so, and, and as, as I went on, it, it helped a little less and helped a little less and got a little stranger and I didn't like some of it. But I always thought, you know, it's not harming anybody else. At a certain point in my early 30s, I said, well, this isn't for me. Uh, I mean, you see it in the Going Clear movie. I get to a point where I go, no, this, this doesn't make any sense to me. But at the same time, it's not harming anybody. My wife is happy with it. My kids seem happy with it. I, I can just, you know, I can just be the guy who picks and chooses and goes along and uses what works for me and not what works for others. But I've always seen a thing for defending underdogs, and they sell it very well as an underdog situation that's being attacked, that's being suppressed around the world, that that, that people just don't understand as bigots, etc., that are trying to destroy it. And I am big on defending people who I think are being picked on by bullies. And then at some point I realized that was a complete lie. Um, and it took me a long time, over 30 years, to figure that out. And once I did, I figured I can't leave quietly. Everyone else, all the other movie stars, other people who've been in and out, left quietly. Frankly, they were just too scared to, to do it because this is an organization that's incredibly vicious and they come after you. And once they do start coming after you, they never stop. It's written right in what Hubbard said. Once you have an enemy, you do not stop attacking that enemy until that enemy is totally, completely utterly destroyed. You don't leave them wounded. So I knew they'd come after me forever. And I know people think that that's hyperbole. They, they think it's, and it's not. They mm. will come after you forever until you're completely, utterly ruined. And they'll find new ways to do it. They've done it with others so many times. I know this because we've seen it. And people can't actually believe it. But the story of, you know, Paulette Cooper, who was a writer who they completely destroyed and set up you know, uh, and had her indicted on bomb threats and had her uh, just had to, you know, at the point of being thrown in jail, thrown in prison and committing suicide. They're able to do that. They're able to do, you know, to do so much and never proven to do so much. They private detectives and their attorneys and they hide behind them. And so I knew going into this, they came after me. I knew they'd find a way to create a scandal that looked nothing like what it was and they came after me. Well, they have, uh, and uh, and people will believe what they want to believe about me. Never really cared. I mean, I do care. I want people to love me, but if they don't, uh, I'm fine. Uh, and, uh, and and if they take away all my money, they take away money. I was I was born without money. I was born in the working class. Uh, I don't need all this lovely stuff. And as as I spend it on attorneys and lose it, uh, it's fine. I'm fine. Uh, there are big problems in this world. You go to Haiti, there's eight people live in a shack with a mud floor and have to sleep standing up when it rains. Those are problems. Uh, and so uh, I knew they'd come after me. I knew they still will. I know they're going to come after me. Leah came out three years after me because I supported her in coming out. Mike did. Uh, Mike Rinder, who I didn't really know in the church, but I've become friendly with. And... Um, they uh, and they're really suffering. I mean, they've been set up in many ways, especially Mike. 
suffering much more than I am. So I, you just can't not speak the truth just because people are going to come after you. You just, once you make a decision, you've got to do, live with it. And that's it. And that's what I'm doing. And very happy to have done made the decision. I wouldn't make the decision in any way, even though I'm incredibly stupid to have done it. <laughs> All I had to do was walk away quietly like everyone else and nothing would have occurred. And that's what they told me. They ganged up on me. Ten people came to my office and said, just walk away quietly, rip off your letter of resignation, walk away quietly, and everything will be fine. And I said, mm, it's not me. Sorry, it's not me. So I knew they were going to do it. They did it. They'll find new ways of doing it. I'll survive. And uh, there, as I said, there are people in much worse situation than I am. All of you are every day. Walk out on this street. You're going to find homeless people. You're going to find people in trouble. You're going to find, especially right now with what's going on. They're desperate. People are suicidal with, with, with this. I mean, this is terrible. And this is, during this pandemic, it just really shows the difference between the rich and the poor. I mean, Canada, I love Canada for ways it's treating this. I mean, they're, they're protecting their people. They're doing their best. I mean, yeah, they're making mistakes, but my God, that's, that's what it is to have a government. America, we're so proud to be Americans. Even when it's foolish, even when it's, you know, we were, we're not socialists, we don't, we're not communists, and therefore we're not protected, we don't have health care, we don't have protections, and no one, gives a, no one gets any money, and we get kicked out in the streets, and yes, we're American. We're idiots. We're idiots. <laughs> so, and I, I, I include myself among them. We're American, I'm an American and a Canadian, and I became an American, and so I'm just as much as an idiot as the rest. We put up with this nonsense. Terrible, terrible things. Are happening in this country every day to good people. So whatever they do to me, couldn't care. You know, much worse things are happening elsewhere. Paul, I've got to say, uh, for every time you've you've called yourself a stupid or an idiot or whatever whatever yeah, phrase you might true. use in this interview, please never stop being stupid and idiot because like the, the ways you've spoken out, the I way the, the the projects you've made because of your apparent idiocy in your own eyes, I disagree, mind, but like. Uh, <laughs> Please never stop being an idiot if this is what, oh, what it's producing. I wish I had a choice and could, but I can't. So thank you. Thank you so We're much. glad you don't. I oh, really God. appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and be well up there and uh, be safe uh, with everyone there. Thank you for doing it. Thank you for loving to yourselves for 30 years. Thank you for keeping it alive. And I will come to one of your conventions one of these times. I promise. I promise. I just, people. I just get nervous. <laughs> just quickly before you go, just I, I, I do have to say all the wonderful comments we've had about how inspired, how much you've inspired the people listening. Oh. And so I'm just passing this on as on behalf of all the lovely comments we've had and how you've inspired had, people. Thank you. Me. I had great contributors. I had great collaborators uh, in this thing and that's how it worked. So Thank you so much. Take care. And and love thank to your you. assistant, Guy, for setting this up. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank now. you. <laughs> I can't. I'm with you forever. I don't know how to get.